From high atop Rocky Road in Moab, Utah, it's KZMU News. I'm Emily Ernson. This is your news for Wednesday, August 9th. Yesterday, the state Supreme Court heard arguments about a law that would ban abortion in Utah. The abortion ban has been on hold for over a year because of a lawsuit filed by Planned Parenthood and the ACLU of Utah. The organization sued the state after the U.S. Supreme Court overturned the constitutional right to abortion in June of 2022. Years before Roe v. Wade was overturned, many states, including Utah, passed trigger laws that would ban abortion immediately at the state level if the U.S. Supreme Court ever deemed abortion unconstitutional. The state's trigger law is on hold while the lawsuit with Planned Parenthood is ongoing. So I know the question today wasn't so much about whether abortions should be legal. The question is whether the trigger law should be blocked while the lawsuit is still being decided. Is that correct? Right. Whether that injunction essentially should remain that would block the trigger ban. This is Aaron Welcher, communications director of the ACLU of Utah. There's enough irreparable harm was a term that was used often today, but that really that that harm meets the standard of keeping an injunction there while the rest of our case and lawsuit um, works its way through the Utah Supreme Court. And can you explain what that means? Like, what is irreparable harm in this case? Not being able to receive that abortion care and to be forced to carry a pregnancy. I mean, there's economic harms that come from people who are not ready to start a family, along with many other examples that our our legal team presented today. Planned Parenthood, which provides most of Utah's abortions, argues that banning abortions would violate Utah's constitutional right of equal protection for men and women under the law. Planned Parenthood attorney Camila Vega argued that denying access to abortion unjustly punishes women for having sex, while no equal punishment exists for men. We're really litigating this as a violation of the Utah state constitution. Essentially, under this equal protection clause, all Utahns have a right to determine when and whether they want to have a family, and really essentially that they have a right over their own bodies and lives. Only certain people can get pregnant, and so if you are forcing a part of the population to carry pregnancies because abortion isn't around, then that really isn't equal protection under under the law. This is attorney Camila Vega at Tuesday's hearing. The founders of Utah enshrined in their constitution a unique, broad, and affirmative right to equality. And so the question is, what do those principles mean today when women have accessed safe, legal, and routine abortion for up to 15 years after Roe v. Wade. I don't think that we need to pretend that Roe v. Wade didn't happen here. The state's attorney argued that banning abortion across Utah does not rise to a level of seriousness that warrants blocking the trigger law during the lawsuit. Attorney Taylor Meehan said that since abortion was criminalized during the state's founding in 1896, the court has a duty to honor those intentions today. At the time of Utah's founding, they were willing to say abortion is a crime. While the federal constitution and Utah constitution might protect some bodily autonomy, I don't think that that you can apply that here. Because as the state has recognized and other states have recognized since before the founding, Abortion is not just one person's right to bodily autonomy. It also implicates the life of an unborn child. 
Justice Paige Peterson argued that while the court aims to honor the principles in the state's constitution, the court can't represent all of the people of Utah through the constitution alone, especially in the case of abortion, since women were excluded from making decisions about Utah's constitution when the state was founded. If we're just looking at laws and public statements about it, the other half of the population, how do we know what their understanding, what they thought the meaning of their rights were And it seems important in this context because women are the ones that experience pregnancy and experience childbirth. And so I'd like to get a sense of that perspective of history, but I'm not seeing much of it. Your Honor, I I agree. It's a difficult question, and it's one this country faces in, in lots of constitutional analysis. I think women had an unprecedented voice in the ratification of Utah's constitution. Although, although they weren't allowed to vote for it. Very fair, Your Honor, but it would I think I, I wouldn't run in the opposite direction to say that the constitution reflects only the views of men at the time. Planned Parenthood's attorney countered that the state has already set a precedent for breaking with Utah's constitution and that similar flexibility should be adopted for abortion as well. Under the state's argument, the legislature could come tomorrow and ban interracial marriage And were it not for federal precedent, Utah Constitution, according to the state, would think that's okay. It's unclear when the Utah Supreme Court will announce its decision on whether to unblock the trigger law. If the court decides to end the injunction, abortions will become illegal immediately, and healthcare providers who perform abortions could be charged with a second-degree felony. You can find more information about the status of abortions in Utah in today's show notes. Children across Colorado are gearing up to go back to school soon. Among them are thousands of four-year-olds who are now eligible for Colorado's new universal preschool program. The state will now pay up to 15 hours a week for preschool for children in the year before they start kindergarten. Children with additional needs had been eligible for extra hours. However, the state recently announced that due to a lack of funding, only children from low-income families who also have a second learning barrier can participate in that program. As Casey Neust of KVNF reports, even for families who qualify for the basic 15 hours a week, the path to preschool is not always smooth, especially in rural communities. There have been concerns about whether enough preschool places are available in the state. In Montrose County, which has been described as a childcare desert, Matt Jenkins with the Montrose County School District says that while the new state program will make preschool more accessible for many families, it doesn't solve the childcare crisis. You know, I, I often get asked the question, you know, I, I thought now that this legislation's passed, the pre, you know, preschool problem is solved, right? And, and my response to that is, well, anytime you take a, a state initiative, a new state program, a new state resource, you know, it's not going to be flipping a switch and the problem's going to be solved. There will be efficiencies that have to be figured out. You know, there are processes that have to be learned and relearned. We're finding, you know, I often get the question, you know, we're seeing that some of these slots aren't getting taken, right? Uh, reporters will ask, well, you know, if the, the state is now funding this, then why are our parents not, you know, applying in droves? And one answer to that question is the process is complicated. I mean, this is the first time the state has ever done this. The state's still figuring out, you know, how, how this is going to work, much less Montrose County. Penny Harris, director for MCSD's Early Childhood Centers, says there are also other programs that support families in paying for preschool. CCAP also does the same thing, Colorado Child Care Assistance Program. That program may pay a private daycare or home care provider to provide a full day of child care for a family. And so they don't have to 
dip into the UPK funding sources. So that could be why it looks like mm-hmm. that there's vacancies. Additionally, Harris notes that not all preschool and child care providers are participating in the program. Well, when the governor's office stood up the Colorado Department of Early Childhood to organize Universal Preschool Program, one of the big things was parent choice. They wanted parents to be able to have the choice where to send their children, whether it be to my program or to a private provider, small center, wherever the providers that were opting into being in the UPK system were. I think that some private homes have just found it more simple to say, I'll keep your kids, let's just keep the same arrangements, and then they're not having to struggle with the complicated application process, the kind of changing the rules as they go because they figure out the systems didn't work. And I don't think in our community it's having the impact that it's having in other communities because we just don't have that many providers in our community. Some three-year-olds are also eligible and could receive up to 10 hours a week of preschool if they qualify. Jenkins with the Montrose County School District says they will help all families with children three to four years old find a preschool place and navigate the different programs that are available to help pay for it. Regardless of the way that it's funded, whether it's Head Start, Universal Pre-K, we're going to make sure that kids have the resources that will get them ready for success in kindergarten. We know research tells us the benefit of early childhood instruction ages three through five make you that much more successful as a student later in elementary school and middle school and high school and, and beyond. And, and so that's a valuable resource that we're going to make sure families can take advantage of. I'm Cassie Knust. On Monday, a Durango teen activist spoke to state legislators and drug policy experts. As KSUT and KSJD's Clark Adamitis reports, the meeting is part of an effort to update Colorado laws. Earlier this year, while he was still a senior at Durango High School, Ilya Stritikis led a campaign to change school district drug policy. Stritikis was one of the teen activists who pushed the 9R school district to allow students to carry and administer naloxone on school campuses. Naloxone is a drug that can reverse the effects of an opioid overdose. On Monday, Stritikis shared his perspective with state legislators and drug policy experts who serve on Colorado's Opioid and Other Substance Use Study Committee. Pushing a bill that will directly say that schools are allowed to train high schoolers in naloxone and that they're also allowed to distribute that to high schoolers. So hopefully the next time that students push for this, it won't take picketing the school board in single-digit weather. Colorado law is unclear whether students can legally carry and administer naloxone on school campuses. Members of the committee say yesterday's testimony will be considered when Colorado legislators move to update state law next year. I'm Clark Adamitis. And that's the KZMU News for Wednesday, August 9th. Get your community-powered journalism weekdays on the airwaves at noon and 6 p.m. You can also find KZMU News anytime online at kzmu.org or wherever you listen to podcasts.